Welcome to the Making It Happen podcast by The Tech Garden. The Tech Garden is Central New York's premier technology incubator fostering high-tech, high-growth companies in downtown Syracuse, New York, and this podcast explores what it means to be an entrepreneur right here in CNY. If you would like to know more about The Tech Garden, please visit thetechgarden.com or follow us on social media. Enjoy the show. I actually think one of the um, the things that the coronavirus epidemic is, is doing to help drones is that it's actually changing public perception which is actually one of the the hardest soft issues that the drone industry has has had a hard time changing. Hi, I'm your host, Mia Tomasello, and today we get to sit down and talk all about the future of drone technology with Ryan Pleskach and Andrew Carter, co-founders of Resilience. Resilience is a 2019 participant and finalist of Genius New York, the world's largest business competition focused on unmanned systems, cross-connected platforms, and other technology-based sectors. As the world becomes increasingly connected, resilience is enabling a new era of autonomous systems by focusing on improving the safety and resiliency of complex ecosystems. If you're lost by what I just said there, we'll get to learn a little bit more about what all of that means in a minute. So sit tight and enjoy the show. With the current state of affairs regarding coronavirus, I think people are looking to tech to solve some of current problems like social distancing and quarantines. So what trends have you been seeing recently? So we've been seeing, you know, people using drones to, to try to attack some of these, uh, these use cases that are, are popping up around quarantine or coronavirus. I, I think the biggest one uh, where drones make sense is with drone delivery, uh, which in the U.S. we've been trying to get going for, for years now. A lot of regulation hurdles there. But really, when you talk about, you know, the, the main thing with coronavirus being physical contact, having contactless delivery, seems like something that everyone can get on board with. A couple other use cases we've seen being pushed are uh, aerial spraying for disinfectant and really for just monitoring for, for crowds or people gathering or for putting speakers to tell people to disperse for, for trying to, you know, keep people from uh, keep people social, social distancing. Right. I, I kind of remember when drones became a household topic, there was a lot of controversy with privacy. And you mentioned that people might use them for monitoring and social distancing and things like that. So do you think the industry as a whole is more likable now or has the controversy is the controversy still relevant? Sure, I'll, I'll jump in here. I think it, there's definitely going to be the privacy issue is always going to be in the background. Um, it's kind of taking a backseat right now because people are looking at how drones can help, you know, re- help return to normalcy in the in the short term. But there's always going to be that concern of somebody, you know, putting a camera on a drone and trying to, uh, you know, spy on the neighbors or you know, doing something nefarious with it. But I think that argument can be made with almost any technology that's been developed in, in recent years. You know, your iPhone, you know, they they use smartphones in the war in Afghanistan, you know, to detonate IEDs. So uh, there are ups and downs that come with all technology. I think the drone world and the, the use of drones is uh, not immune to this. But I think right now there's a uh, far more potential good um, that can outweighs the uh, potential uh, negative aspects of what they could be used for. When do you think package delivery will begin and maybe become mainstream? I know people are talking about it not only for Amazon, who I think was the the largest major player, but also just prescriptions, pharmacies and things like that. So there's a few parts of that question. Package delivery is actually already being done uh, multiple parts of the country. 
UPS is actually certified as a part 135 carrier, which uh, allows them to essentially deliver packages for money. Uh, Amazon and Google are going through that process along with a few others. The, the real issue is that packages right now can only be delivered within line of sight, which really limits you to about a mile. Uh, so there are multiple programs going on around the country where people are getting their um, you know, food or pharmaceuticals delivered within that one mile radius. Uh, the problem is that from a, a business perspective, um, that, that needs to scale to be truly useful. Um, you know, how many people live within a mile of, of where they're trying to get their stuff? And are there enough of those people uh, where it makes sense for someone to set up a drone delivery station there? So I, I think that you're going to see package delivery uh, on the heels of UAS traffic management or UTM. Uh, that's really going to uh, basically allow broad access to the airspace. Uh, particularly with complex operations such as beyond visual line of sight and, and operations over people. As far as mm -hmm. timelines for that, uh, there's multiple pilot programs going on around the country. Uh, there's regulation right now, um, rulemaking going through the FAA. Uh, but I, I think we're probably still uh, a few years off from it, it getting to uh, a real mainstream state. Mm -hmm. Is it mostly, you think, legislative hurdles? Yeah, I think uh, regulation. Um, right now, there's a, a remote ID rule that essentially is going um, going through the rulemaking process, but the the current uh, rule, as it's designed, uh, doesn't make that actually mandatory for all users for three years, roughly. So, in order for uh, the the operators in the airspace to take advantage of the fact that they know where everybody else is, uh, and write that into their safety case, is still a few years out. So there's going to be pockets where people, um, you know, it's more voluntary, not, um, you know, mandated. Uh, there's going to be uh, a lot of ground-based surveillance trying to find uh, where all these drones are in order to then uh, be able to, to avoid them and, and plan around them. Um, and there's going to be other rules. It's going to be rules around privacy. Uh, I actually think one of the, um, the things that the coronavirus epidemic is, is doing to help drones is that it's actually changing public perception which is actually one of the, the hardest soft issues that the drone industry has, has had a hard time changing. You know, most people, when they think about drones, think about, you know, uh, not autonomous systems with missiles on it blowing up somebody in the Middle East, at least here yeah. in the U.S. Uh, you know, the, the connotations aren't great. Uh, but when you're seeing all these, these kind of drones for good uh, applications and where they're helping, I think the, the stigma around them is going down and uh, you're really seeing public perception of what they can do and how they can help going up. So where does resilience fit into this equation? What exactly does resilience um, do in UAS? So resilience fits in uh, when we start talking about uh, UTM or UAS traffic management. Uh, when you, you start to have this uh, large complex ecosystem, there, there's many pieces of equipment, many uh, cyber physical systems, a lot of web-based services, a lot of operators. Uh, there's legacy systems, there's new systems, uh, the ecosystem is federated, meaning that different people own and operate the different components of it. It's not all under one roof. Uh, the things, um, you know, obviously can get pretty complicated. One of the things there, what we focus on is within that complex ecosystem, how can you tell that everything's working correctly? And then what do you do when something goes wrong? So when, when you have all these piece parts working, all these systems are accepting data from each other and they're using this data uh, to make these safety critical decisions about what to do, how to operate, where to go. Uh, they really need to, to be able to trust that data. And, and that's really what resilience uh, brings to the table is that we, we facilitate uh, you know, trust in the ecosystem. 
people can trust that the the components that they're listening to are working correctly, that they're the right components, and that the data they're getting is valid and, and good data. And then we can help with uh, with things like maintenance. So obviously, when you know you have uh, these these drones that are out doing deliveries, you want the system that they're uh, relying on that's supporting them to be up. So system uptime becomes uh, very important. So we we can do things like uh, fault tolerance, uh, graceful degradation of the the system. So that things don't just you know black out that you have some uh, functionality to continue going and then helping maintenance users uh, actually get the system fixed in a timely manner and, and get it back up to full capacity how did you begin to get interested in this because it seems it is very complex <laughs> so uh it's kind of funny I, I spent my entire career doing this for the uh, the army um, as a part of the army's ground-based sense and avoid system uh, they, the army back in uh, the mid 2000s had all these drones coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan and they needed to fly them in the, in the national airspace to do training. The problem was all of their restricted airspace was already being used for, you know, things like fighter jet training. And the FAA basically said, uh, you, you can't fly those things in our airspace. They haven't gone through uh, any kind of certification process and they don't have a pilot. So uh, the army got together with the company I was working at and designed this program called the Army's Ground-Based Sense and Avoid Program, which uh, was actually deployed in 2016 and allows Army drones to fly in the national airspace uh, routinely beyond visual line of sight. I was one of the first programs or first uh, approvals like that the FAA ever gave out. Uh, and and commer- the commercial industry still really actually hasn't gotten there yet uh, to, to where we got from the Army in 2016. But that was mm-hmm. interesting because uh, you know when we first started that program, there was no commercial interest in what we were doing. Uh, and by the time we were done in 2016, uh, you know, there was tons of commercial interest in, in getting drones into the national airspace. So uh, I transitioned over to to look at the the commercial opportunities. Right. Okay. So is there? Because uh, I think you were saying uh, before that, like Amazon can't deliver packages because they um, are outside of a certain distance, but those drones can. So are there two sets of rules there? Yeah, um, I think that the rules are, are different based on the, the technology. So um, the Army won't let anybody use its technology. It has no interest in, in helping Amazon. Uh, if Amazon had the same technology that the Army had, they could deliver their drones or deliver packages uh, potentially with their drone. So okay. I think that's part of it. Um, the other part is that uh, the Army system isn't scalable. Uh, it, it's essentially uh, made to be based around an airport or uh, an Army base. Whereas uh, with, with the commercial UTM industry, they really want to scale it over you know, a state, a large metropolitan area, uh, the entire US. So there, there's some differences there uh, as far as uh, the design of the system um, and with the, some of the technology involved. Interesting. Ryan, I remember uh, we were discussing in the halls of the TechRN before coronavirus about air taxis. And I think you said something about the Olympics so could you explain a little bit about air taxis and are those going to become popular in the near future? And what's the kind of state of affairs with those? Well, so I think uh, your your question about the popularity of them, um, that's the trillion dollar question, right? Um, <laughs> so there are a handful of, um, you know, they call it urban air mobility or advanced aerial mobility um, is kind of a, a new a new phrase that's catching on now. France or Paris, France is hosting the Olympics, the Summer Olympics in in 2024, um, assuming that with the delay to the Tokyo Olympics, that they they keep it on the the same schedule that it is now. And they have uh, outlined an ambitious goal to have 
urban air mobility or air taxis uh, some of some variety um, serve in Paris uh, by, by the Olympics in 2024, which is really only four years away. And so that's a, a, a really aggressive uh, time frame. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of uh, technological challenges, regulatory challenges that need to be overcome by then. Um, but in, I'm one that I favor ambitious goals, right? I, I look forward to, to them. Um, I'm excited that, uh, that France is, is pushing forward with that objective. Um, as to the popularity of it, I think that goes along with, with trust and safety, right? If, if people believe that the airframes, uh, the aircraft and the process from start to finish, if it's safe, it's convenient and it's affordable, then yeah, I think it will be hugely popular. But r- right now, you know, what's driving it is that is the urbanization, you know, that we're seeing across the world and, you know, streets and, uh, highways are getting congested and, you know, you look at Los Angeles and D.C., um, some of the popular, more populous American cities, um, you know, people talk about 90 minute commutes to and from work. And um, that's just that's a lot of lost time in a day. And then over somebody's life of working 30 years, you know, you literally spend years of your life sitting in traffic. So I, I think it's a it's really the combination of all these things working together is what's going to answer um whether or not it, it, it's going to catch on, right? It, the aircraft has to be safe, has to provide some kind of value to people. And, you know, there's a huge environmental aspect too. You know, are these electric, electric aircraft, you know, are they going to be reducing um, greenhouse gas emissions and um, clean, cleaner air and things like that? Um, th- there's a lot of things working together and, you know, we're excited to be a part of it. And uh, we think that, the software we're developing for the health and integrity monitoring is going to to be a key aspect of one of those key technologies that's going to kind of help unlock uh, this future, you know, economy of, uh, of of drones buzzing around the skies. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing I'll add right. there is, um, you know, it, it is coming. Uh, there's over 160 urban air mobility urban air mobility vehicles currently right now being developed around the world. Uh, you know, billions of dollars being pumped in um, to to the development of those. Uh, so there's, uh, you know, don't don't take our word for it. You know, we may be not not be economic uh, economists, uh, but uh, there there is certainly a, a lot of people out there that uh, believe very strongly that this is a um, you know going to be a a thing that people are going to take advantage of, uh, and there's, there's going to be a lot of um, you know market forces pushing people towards it. Mm-hmm. Right. And could I ask you a little bit about what it's like to be in what they're calling the drone corridor in central New York and how that's played in to your company? Sure. So um, the the corridor, if people like to call it, um, is basically uh, has one end, uh, one anchor point in Syracuse. And the other anchor point is uh, the Griffiths. Uh, it used to be an Air Force base, uh, but the old Griffiths Air Force Base in Rome, New York. Uh, it's about 50 miles, and it kind of follows a, a stretch of the uh, New York's throughway system, I-90. Um, so it provides a a good, you know, linear uh, air, airspace corridor for all all this testing to kind of uh, take place. Now there there's some other. Um, it's not just a straight corridor, but there's some other, uh, I guess, bubbles that of added airspace around the airport where that where they do some close in testing. Um, but we actually, um, there's a large warehouse project going up uh, kind of on the uh, central part of, of Syracuse, which we 
we think is Amazon. We don't know for certain, but there's a lot of speculation that it's Amazon. And, you know, there's a lot of speculation that it's no coincidence that Amazon is building the second largest warehouse facility in the world at one end of this or at one anchor point of this drone corridor. So there's a lot of excitement in this area. And, you know, the test site's been around for uh, five or six years now. And seeing the growth of the test site in the corridor and now having somebody like Amazon potentially coming in and setting up shop to be at that one end of the corridor, um, it really could be a huge uh, turning point for, or maybe not turning point is the wrong word, but uh, it could be really a, a growth accelerator for this part of the, the state and our local economy. Um, I, I'm really excited to see uh, if Amazon is actually the tenant for that uh, warehouse and if they have plans to uh, to hopefully leverage the corridor to you know, do some, some more testing and, you know, get some more certifications, do some more uh, deliveries. And, you know, maybe Syracuse, New York will be one of the, one of the, you know, early cities in the, in the U S that has routine uh, uh, drone deliveries for packages. Uh, that's really exciting proposition. And can I also ask you about um, your experience with genius New York? So you are um, a company of genius New York and have been there for, or been with the accelerator for two years now, and it's the largest drone accelerator. So what what has been your experience with Genius New York? I think it's been great. Uh, I think there's been a lot of collaboration between teams. Uh, I think that, you know, we, we've certainly got a lot out of the program, uh, particularly from a business acumen perspective. Uh, we came in uh, with a lot of engineering and program management backgrounds, but, uh, you know, the, the actual running a business, uh, you know, all the different hats you have to wear from, from marketing, from business development, uh, from financial, uh, you know, <laughs> doing your finances. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, we, we learned a lot about uh, all of the, the kind of other elements of running the business that we weren't necessarily strong in. Uh, and then we, we've actually worked uh, closely with a lot of the other teams. Um, we're, we're actually uh, on contracts now with multiple other uh, Genius teams uh, and have more, uh, more proposals and more work uh, in the works right now. Yeah, I like to call it that the Genius Program gave us a, a crash course MBA. Uh, it's really uh, coming from people who have spent, you know, spent their careers basically doing government contracting. Um, we really didn't get much involved with marketing or press releases or, you know, business development. Uh, so the the tech garden and you know the the first three months of the accelerator um, for the Genius Program really kind of. Uh, shoved some of that acumen down our throats and made us think about um, think about things that weren't just directly related to the product, right? You have to think about your business as a whole and you know, how do you feed all the different parts of it? And uh, that's for us, or at least for me, right? That's, I, I think, one of the biggest parts, one of the biggest benefits of the Genius Program. So um, you explained a little bit about how you came to drones through the Army, but did you always know that you wanted to own a business or be an entrepreneur? No, <laughs> actually, uh, the, the Genius New York program actually really uh, made that available. Um, we uh, essentially we were at uh, Cal Analytics and we were going to try to build this program uh, or, or our, our software in that uh, company. And the Genius program was like, well, it makes more sense really to start a, a brand new company uh, that's going to be more growth focused. Uh, and that really got uh, got us thinking, well, you know, that, that makes some amount of sense. And if we're going to start a new company, then, you know, we're, <laughs> we're essentially going to enter that entrepreneurial world. 
Uh, so I, I think that they're, um, you know, I, I think Ryan and I are, are both uh, very good with risk. Uh, we're not particularly risk adverse, but we're also very strategic in how we approach things. Um, we like to have, you know, a plan and like to understand the variables. So I, I think we, um, we we have a good mindset for it. But uh, I know uh, Ryan's been a little bit more entrepreneurial than I was, but uh, I, I was not considering starting a company before um, we got involved with Genius. Yeah, I've always been, um, I'd say I, I had that entrepreneurial itch. It was it was hard to find, right? Once you get a good idea, right? You think you've got a good idea, but what's the next, you know, other than just starting a business out of your home and, right, and hoping that what your idea, that somebody agrees that you have a good idea. I, I, I never knew what, what the next step was, right? And so, and a lot of, you know, being an entrepreneur too, it has to do with timing in your life, right? What kind of life events you've got going on. For, for me this time with resilience, right? Everything just kind of fell into, uh, into the right place. You know, Carter had, uh, you know, a great idea. Um, I think it's it very much needed in the marketplace. And, you know, he approached me about, you know, helping him and joining him on this adventure. And, uh, you know, I was, I was thrilled to do it. It was a way to, um, to get into the entrepreneurial world. We had the genius, you know, back in, and that really took away a lot of risk, but it also, um, it also gave us confidence in a, in a place to, to jump off from, and, you know, make sure that we weren't just going to be in business, you know, six months. Um, we're we're uh, about 18 months into it now. Well, 16, 18 months into it. And we we hope that it's the start of a, of a long journey. Did you have any mentors that really pushed you uh, along the way? So I, I would say we haven't had just one specific mentor. Um, uh, again, relating back to the genius program, right? We we get intro- we were th- introduced to to several different you know local leaders, uh, local business uh, people who have built businesses and been successful. Um, so I think I, I think we try to take a little bit from from different people. Um, you know, I, I've sat down with uh, with Jeff Noss a couple of times um, from uh, Digital Hive and, and talked with him. Uh, and plus, he's been you know presented at several Tech Garden events. Um, you know, we've uh, we lean on Rick Clonin quite a bit. We ask him some feedback and questions. You know, Mark Vigiano um, has kind of been a little bit of a, of a mentor to us that we run things by. Um, so I, I wouldn't point to any one person, but uh, again, we the Tech Garden and the Genius Program provided us with uh, a fairly vast network of people that we can you know reach out to for certain things. And I, so I, I would say we've had several um, mentors over the the course of the year and a half or whatever. Um, but we call on, we reach out to different people when we have, um, you know, specific questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think during the, the early phases of, of genius, um, we, we needed and took advantage of a lot more mentoring. Um, Lee Butoff was our, our actual advisor, uh, on the program. Um, and, and he helped us immensely just trying to get basic business things set up. Um, I think now, you know, now that we, we have kind of the, you know, the business in place, uh, a lot of our mentoring is, um, you know, h- harder questions, open-ended questions, uh, not how do I do this more, um, you know, h- how do I create this, you know, how do I plan for these contingencies? Uh, what do I do if a coronavirus, you know, a pandemic hits? Um, you know, uh, so I, I think that uh, early on, it was a lot more hands-on um, here. Let me show you the, the basics. And now we're more uh, reaching out to people as needed. 
So what is next for resilience? I know um, you, I think, had mentioned that you are onboarding some interns potentially. Yeah, so I, I think, um, you know, right now we, uh, what's next is to keep doing what we're doing. Um, we, we recently, uh, we're, I mean, we're excited to, to, you know, be able to announce that we're actually uh, a part of every single federally funded uh, UTM program in the U.S. right now. Uh, we're part of the NASA Grand Challenge, the FAA's UPP Phase 2, and we won one of the FAA Broad Area Announcement UTM programs. Um, so we're, we're kind of cranking away on those. Uh, we're also working uh, on integrating our platform into uh, the Ohio Department of Transportation UTM program and the, uh, the Ohio Department of Transportation AFRL uh, ground-based detect and avoid system called SkyVision down in Ohio. So we're, we're we're cranking away on those, trying to get those programs moving, uh, and, and yeah, we do. Uh, you know, mid pandemic here, we're we're actually going to be uh, our our interns are graduating, and a, a new batch is coming in. So we're uh, we're trying to deal with how we uh, we onboard uh, without having people in person. Well, congratulations on all of that success, and um, I just want to thank you for talking with us today. Thanks again for listening to the Tech Gardens Making It Happen podcast. If you would like to know more about resilience, visit resilience.com. That's resilience with an X. We'll leave more information in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode with a different startup company. So please subscribe to keep in the loop and feel free to leave us some feedback with a review.